We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let's turn to what Charles read to you in Numbers chapter 16. What do you know about the Korah rebellion? As a matter of fact, he read in the book of Jude, which is your last New Testament book that kind of looks to the end of the church age going into the book of Revelation. And it talks about those who follow the way of Cain and the way of Balaam and have rushed headlong into uh, the rebellion of Korah. So it's a name that occurs from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Some things we need to learn. You stay with me here and let me show you about this. Uh, Let me catch you up to speed. Whenever the nation of Israel came out of Egypt in Exodus 1 and following, they began, uh, once they were let out of Egypt and Pharaoh said, y'all leave, they made a trip and stopped at Mount Sinai in Arabia. And at that point, we are in Exodus chapter 19 at Sinai. And from Sinai all the way through the end of Exodus, through the book of Leviticus, and then 10 chapters into the book of Numbers, they're all there at Sinai receiving the bulk of the Jewish uh, religious law and moral law and ceremonial law. Moses would probably write the book of Genesis uh, in the future days of their travel. And then the book of Deuteronomy, when this generation dies and a new generation goes in, and you will have him write a duet nomos, a second law of Deuteronomy. But through chapter 19, you have the giving of the law at Sinai. And if you'll remember, when Moses came down the mountain at Sinai, uh, he found that there was a golden calf, and the nation had said, what happened to this Moses? He's been gone. They rejected him. They said, let's get a new leader. And if we need to go back to Egypt, because we missed those leeks and onions, then let's go back. And God smote the leaders, and he would have destroyed the whole nation for their idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai against the God who had personally led them forth with a cloud by day and, a, um, and fire by night and manna in the wilderness that God had taken care of them and they erected an altar and said, let's follow him because of lust. The Bible said they sat down to eat and drink at a feast to this God and they rose up to play, which is a word for sexual promiscuity because golden calves do not offer a proper buttress and, and uh, uh, restraint to immorality. No animal does. And so they found themselves in, a, in a, uh, an orgy at the foot of the mountain. And so God was going to destroy them, but he didn't because one man stood up and said, God, they're going to say that you couldn't take them into the land. Kill me and let them go. Who are we talking about? Charlton Heston. That's exactly right. (laughs) Moses said, kill me and let them go. And God does. He smites the leaders, but the nation goes on. And now when they leave Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, they get organized for the march and they head off to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is looking into going into the land of Canaan. And they stop and there they send out spies to learn the lay of the land, they come back, 12 of them, and they say, this land devours its inhabitants. The cities are big, the people are bigger. And we're, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. We better turn and get out of here. 10 out of 12 said, let's go home. Who were the two that said, let's stay here? Caleb and Joshua. And God once again said, matter of fact, they said, let's get another leader and we'll, we'll go home. And God smote the nation that they're going to now travel around Sinai for 40 years until they die. And he smote the leaders of the rebellion, the leader of which was named Korah. And he was going to smite the whole nation for the second time. But one guy stood up and said, they'll talk about you and say, you couldn't do it. Kill me, Moses. Twice the nation rebelled. Twice God was going to destroy them. 
And twice Moses stood up and said, take me. Y'all know of another particular Jew that said, kill me, not them? Our Lord. Yeah, he's a great type of Christ. And so now uh, God had mercy on them at Kadesh Barnea. And so now in chapter 16, they have another rebellion. It is the third nationwide rebellion against God and Moses in the short history of the Jewish people. And this rebellion in verse 1 is a guy named Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath. Do y'all know what a Kohathite is? Among the Levites, they divided them up. Uh, these are the descendants of Moses and uh, Levi, one of the, the children of Jacob. And they are, of which Moses and, and uh, Aaron are uh, Levites. And within the Levites, there was a special group called those of uh, Kohath. And their job is to carry all the furniture of the tabernacle. They carry it on poles. They don't touch it with their hands. They don't even look upon it. They cover it uh, with a blue covering so no one looks upon it. And then they would carry it with their hands. Those are the Kohathites. And then there was a group that carried the curtains. They were called the Gershonites. And then a group that carried all the big upright poles of the tabernacle. They're called the Merorites. And so these were the beacons guys, all right? And they moved the temple and the nation would move with them. Whenever the fire by night or the cloud by day would move, the nation would get up and they would follow God. And uh, this guy, Korah, is a Kohathite. It's the highest place you can have in the nation and not be a priest is a Kohathite. And so here is the son of Korah, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, and they are all sons of Reuben. Do y'all know who Reuben is? He's the firstborn son of Jacob. He was replaced by Joseph as firstborn that got a double portion uh, because Reuben was the guy that went into his father's concubine, his maidservant, and in so doing, tried to maneuver his way into taking his father's place, and he was set down. And um, Reuben is the firstborn, and again, he's a high place within the brothers, as Kohath was a high place within, I'm sorry, yeah, the, uh, Korah was a high place as a Kohathite. And in verse 2, they rose up before Moses, together with some sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. These were old, successful, wealthy men that were the uh, received leaders of the nation. Okay. And so this rebellion against Moses is with leaders. A Kohathite, Reubenites, and wealthy men. In other words, their problem, and you can see what it is down in verse 3. They said, you have gone far enough, Moses. All the congregation are holy. Every one of them. The Lord is in their midst, so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly? These leaders had a problem with pride. And the problem they had was against Judaism. They didn't like Judaism because Judaism from Abraham on, from the tabernacle on, from David on, to the New Testament writers who were Jews on, teaches that you are not saved before God because you have earned it, because you have worked to gain acceptability. But in the Old Testament, you approached God whenever a priest would offer a sacrifice for you, would lay his hands at the Day of Atonement on this goat and pronounce the sins of the nation, would lay a covering on the goat, and they would kill it. And then the priest would take his blood before the presence of God. The priest would offer a sacrifice for himself for his own sin, then go into the Holy of Holies once a year 
and they would tie a rope on his ankle in case he fell over dead because it was hard to get a detail to go in and get him out. And he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant that held the law of God. And above it was the glory of God, the Shekinah that would look down. And so between God and his law, there was blood as a mediation. And you did that every October. Uh, that's why the Los Angeles Dodgers always had to f schedule Sandy Koufax, a Jew, to not preach on Yom Kippur. Did y'all know that? You learned it here. Okay. Uh, he wouldn't pitch on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. But they would, he would put blood down, and so that would happen 1,500 times until the coming of Christ. There was the Lamb of God that would bear away the sin of the world. And then the law had ended and ushered forth into a new covenant of rebirth. And so that's Judaism. In its complete fulfillment in Christianity, man doesn't come before God. Christ sheds his blood where God sees man through the atoning death of Christ, our high priest, our mediator. In the Old Testament, you didn't come before God. You let the priest come before God with the shedding of blood, which was a shadow and an anticipation of the coming of Christ. Uh, Adam was saved in the garden because God slew an animal and covered him with the skin and the blood was shed for the, uh, for the man. Um, Abel would offer up sacrifice and his descendants, uh, when they were cast out of Eden, he would offer up sacrifice that they could stand before God. And so that idea is literally from the Garden of Eden to the end of the Bible, where you see the Messiah called the Lamb standing as if slain. Are you with me? It's the broadest idea in the Bible. Human beings that are sinful do not approach a holy God not in themselves. They come through the provision of one who will die in their place. These leaders had a problem with that. And they simply said in verse three, you've gone too far, Moses. It's one thing for you to be a leader, one thing for you to go up Sinai and see God. But when you say that we can't come before God unless it's through you, that is arrogant, that is narrow, and you have gone too far. All the assembly is holy. Why do you exalt yourselves in their midst? How many times have you gone to witness to somebody and you talked about the Bible and they say, yeah, I, I think it's a good book. And it's, the chief idea is Jesus. Ah, no one can say anything bad about Jesus. And he died upon the cross. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of those crosses out there. Yeah, well, the reason he died is that God could punish him, him and not us. And so no one can come before God except on the basis of Christ's death. Well, you don't understand. I can never, I've never killed anybody. I've never hurt anybody. Yeah, but you're still a sinner and you know that you are and you can't come either. Well, what about people that aren't Christians? No man cometh to me, to the Father, except by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes except by me. There is no other name given among men by which they must be saved except Christ. No, nobody can come. Well, what about these Hindus, these Buddhists, these uh, Muslims and all these guys? No, they come on self-righteousness. They are not allowed in God's presence. You only come through the death of Christ. You've gone too far, pal. You've gone too far. I can understand you believe in the Bible and Jesus and Easter, but when you start saying that I can't come unless it's through him, that there is no other way to God except through Christ, you've gone too far. God is in our midst. Why do you exalt yourself over everybody else? I'm not. I'm putting us all on the same level, and none of us can come. Not Paul, not Peter, not anybody except through the death of Christ. Amen. That is the major item of Christianity and of Judaism. These guys, it sounds weird, but they have a problem with Judaism. They don't like the cross. They don't like the idea of the exemption and of the turning away of self-righteous man. One time I'm speaking at an old folks home. You know what it's full of, don't you? Old folks, yeah. 
And there was a woman that had her like mother there that was 190 years old. And they were talking about how precious and how sweet. And she walked in just so precious and sweet and sat up on the front row. And I said, hello, precious, sweet lady. And I taught about Christ and the cross. And uh, she just smiled. I was so wonderful. Talking about the Bible and its truth and Jesus and who gave his life. And the reason he died is that none of us in ourselves have a right to stand before God. God said that our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. And we cannot approach God except on the basis of Christ's death. And that is why it's called Christianity. And I looked down and that little old lady wasn't smiling at me no more. She, I had just told her that she was uh, exiled from the presence of God in herself and she needed a savior. She was all for Jesus, but not in him being the only way by which she could approach. And her eyes looked at me and she went <sighs> like a snake. All right. Are you kidding you? I met her outside and we went at it. <laughs> She was tough. All right. Yeah, what, she had a problem. You know what her problem was? She would have said, we're all holy. You've gone too far. You're too narrow. You ever heard that? What about the good guys? Does he need Jesus? Yeah. What about the guys in other religions? Yeah. He, if you didn't, Christ wouldn't have had to die. You've gone too far. You've gone too far. If I were to speak at Harvard, Yale, Princeton and say that man has a certain knowledge of what he can examine, but when he gets into God, creation of the universe, nature of God, nature of man, evil, redemption, the future, your studies won't help you. God must speak, and for you to approach him, God must act on your behalf. Amen? And they look at you and hiss, and they say to you, religious boy, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. And so these guys have a problem with the Bible. Well, in verse 4, Moses said, let's let God decide. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company. Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, the one whom he will choose he will bring near. Meaning, it's not up to us to decide how we're going to come to God. God must determine how we're going to come to him. And so let's have a theological showdown. Let's, let's have a duel. Korah, you bring your incense to offer to God like a priest would, and Aaron will bring his. And let's see who God takes. Well, Verse 6, take censers for yourselves, Korah, all your company, put fire in them, lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord. The man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. And then he says in verse 7, you have gone far enough. Korah, you've, you've crossed the line. You ever do this when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? And uh, they say, look, I think this Jesus stuff in the Bible and Christ, that's good for some people, and that's good for you. Myself, I don't really need it. I've been to college, and uh, I was a phys ed major that make a seven in uh, genetics. Okay. I don't really need the Bible. I've, I'm smart enough. Uh, and as far as coming before God... I'm not that bad, and I really don't think I've done pretty well on my own. I really don't think I need Christ. But that's good for some people. And you want to say to them, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. You've stepped someplace you shouldn't step. In heaven, there was an angel that felt he didn't need God. His name was Lucifer. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord holy and lifted up, train of his robe filling the temple. And I said, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And an angel took a coal from the altar and touched his lips. Isaiah could not approach on his own. And so 
Let's let God decide. He says in verse 8, Hear now, sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle, to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And he has brought you near. Korah, all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you. He says, God has exalted you. You are who you are because of God. That's the only reason you can get so proud is that God has been good to you. And now are you seeking the priesthood also? You want to step before God without any mediation? Do y'all remember a guy named uh, Cain that his brother is presenting sacrifice as God presented sacrifice for Adam? And Cain, because he was the oldest one there, felt that he could just take not a sacrifice, but just grain that he had grown himself and throw it on the altar, and God would not accept it. And then his face fell, and God said, why are you angry? He wouldn't answer him. He said, do right. You go back to the altar. Do like your brother Abel that offered up the firstlings of his flock, the shedding of blood. And he got bitter, and he just went and killed Abel. And he was cast out of Eden. Uh, you remember a guy named Uzziah, a king that ruled for 52 years and felt he was so great he didn't need a high priest? And he pushed the priest aside and he went into the presence of God on his own. He thought, I've always wanted to see this. And he went in. High priest wore a medallion on his head that said, holy to the Lord. You remember what broke out on his head? Leprosy. And God said, you get out of here. I love what the Bible says. It said, And he made haste to get out. I'll guarantee you he did. And he died a leper, and they didn't bury him in the tombs of the king. They buried him in a vacant lot because they said he is a leper. He carried that to the end of his days. And so you don't try to traipse before a holy God on your own unless you're perfect. Unless you're perfect, which we are not, for all have sinned. And so he says in verse 11, Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together. You see the next three words? What do they say? Against the Lord. He says, Korah, your problem is not me. And your problem is not Aaron. Your problem is God. You don't like the holiness of God. And that sacrificial sacrifice for you is a stumbling block. Christ is our stone of stumbling and our rock of, and it's the Greek word scandalon. You know what a scandal is? It's not that you've done evil. It's that you've done evil and you've tried to cover it. And when you find out, it is now a scandal. Christ is the stone of stumbling and the rock of scandal. You thought you were good. I remember at the church I used to be at back in the 70s, oh gosh, early 70s, they had a revival. And there was a little old lady there named Granny Peel, Lucille Peel. And she looked like a Norman Rockwell drawing of a grandmother. She was just precious and beautiful. Her husband had literally been the mason that laid the bricks for the building of the church. Her son had become a Methodist minister and she was a pious, dear lady. And they had an altar call, and up comes Lucille Peel walking to the front, and the place went dead silent. She went up there to get saved. And one of the leaders of the church, a dear friend of mine named Jim Atea, took her by the hand, and she said, I've never heard that you can't come without Christ. That's why I've been so good. I was trying to earn it. And Jim prayed with that dastardly old sinner. And the church went silent, and all of a sudden, people began to parade to the first to the church because they saw, good night, if Granny got saved. The scandal has broken. We're all sinful. And so, incidentally, what did the Apostle Paul call himself? The chief of sinners. Yeah. And so, nobody's good enough to traipse into the 
the brick kiln of God's holiness on their own. So he says, you've got a problem with God. Y'all remember a story Jesus told about two guys that stood in God's presence in the temple? One was a publican, a tax gatherer. One was a Pharisee, the best and the worst that Israel had to offer. And the Pharisee said, great prayer. I thank you, O God, that I am not like other men. Isn't that a prayer? It's like reading my book, Humility and How I Achieved It, you know. Aren't we selling my book at the back? Okay, yeah. Y'all need to get it. I've made dozens of dollars off that book. Okay. But the guy says, I thank you, God, that I'm a better man than other men. I pray, I tithe, I fast. I've done all these things. And then he points to this, this uh, uh, what you call it, this tax gatherer, and he says, thank you that I'm not like this guy. The other guy stands at a distance. He will not lift his eyes and look upon what leads to the presence of God. And he beats himself. He beats his heart. He says, I can't look. I can't approach because of my heart. And all he says is, God, be merciful. As a matter of fact, it's not the Greek word normally for mercy. It's the word for propitious. When you approach a deity because his wrath has been satisfied by the sacrifice of another, propitiation. He said, God, be propitious. He's looking at the offering for him. And he says, God, I'm coming on the base of that. Someone died for me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, that man went to his house justified rather than the other man. This guy trusted in himself. This guy trusted in God. Well, that's what Moses is saying to Korah, that you've got a problem with God. That is why there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. Because when a man comes to Christ, that's just the tip of the iceberg. When a man rejects Christ, that's the tip of the iceberg. When you come to God on the basis of Christ, the rest of the iceberg says, I am not smart and I am not strong and I am not holy. I am weak and darkened and sinful. And that's why I'm accepting you. Amen. And that's what makes it pleasing because now everything has come in line with Christ. When a guy says, I don't need Christ, that's not merely a, um, a change in a number of possibilities. There is an iceberg underneath that rejection. I don't need your word because I'm so darn smart. I don't need the death of Christ because I'm so good. And I don't need the rebirth because I'm so darn strong. And if the rest of the world was as smart and as strong and as holy as me, it wouldn't need Christ either. And that will send you to hell right there. It's, the, it's underneath that rejection that tells you something. And so, in verse, uh, oh, where am I? Y'all visit with each other. Okay. In verse 12, Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, these Reubenites, and they said, we will not come. We're not coming. They didn't come, and they said it was because they couldn't trust Moses. Is it not enough that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt, they also happen to kill your babies, to have us die in the wilderness, and that was because of you, but you would lord it over us also? Indeed, you have not brought us from a land, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards, and would you put out the eyes of these men? They are saying, we can't trust you. You're a tyrant. You're in a power play. You're not a man of God. And no, we're not coming. I think that they wanted not a confrontation. They want a mutiny. They want a takeover. They want to be able to assemble the rest of the nation against him. They don't want a duel. And so, in verse 15, 
Moses became angry and said to the Lord, don't regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, you and all your company be present. He says, no, I'm not going to accept your little go-ahead group of guys. No, I want you and me in front of God. So no, I know what you're doing. I know about your mutiny and I don't buy it. You know I haven't done anything to you. You bring your, your pals. And so, in verse 18, they each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. This is what Korah wanted a mutiny of two million against two. And now we're going to take over and Korah's going to change the word. We're going to have a Judaism without the priesthood, without Moses and without uh, sacrifice. Y'all ever heard of liberal theology? That's what it is. It is a Christianity with all the words, Bible, God, heaven, hell, salvation, Jesus. But they don't mean what the Bible means. It's called semantic mysticism. We don't feel that he is the son of God. We don't feel that he died for our sins. We don't feel that he rose from the dead. We don't feel that the Bible is true. We don't believe in hell and we're not sure about heaven. And so they take out, they kind of gut, they do a taxidermist model on Christianity and they take the heart out of it, but they still leave the shell out there. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to take over the faith with an ersatz Judaism that honors self-righteousness and gets rid of the holiness of God. Anybody want to gamble how this text is going to end? Anybody think you can back God down? Well, in verse uh, 18, the whole congregation assembles. Dig this. Korah, sons of Reuben, 250 leaders, all the congregation. It grows. Why does it grow? If you want a crowd, what you do is you preach about a religion, but you don't talk about the holiness of God. You don't talk about the death of Christ. You don't talk about heaven and hell. And you can get you a pretty good group of success-motivated people. But when you start talking about Christ, you start making enemies. Uh, how did Paul put it? We are an aroma of Christ among those being saved and those perishing. To the one we're an aroma of life unto life. To the other, we're an aroma of death unto death. And so Christ sends up an aroma and the lost hate it. And so whenever you preach about a Bible that is true, man that is sinful in Christ, that is the only way to come, you eliminate the crowd and you will only take those that believe and their hearts have been touched by God that they are not smart and they are not wise and they are not holy and they are not strong. If you want to get you a religion, Jesus said, I've come in my father's name and you didn't receive me. If another comes in his own name, oh, you'll receive him. You ever seen films on Woodstock? How to get a million people naked in the mud? All right. All you got to do is exalt total human freedom and you can get your crowd. Well, in verse 19, Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The mutiny has taken shape. The mutiny against God. Incidentally, that is why Charles read to you from the book of Jude, the last New Testament epistle that is called the Acts of the Apostates that looks at the coming false teaching all through the next 20 centuries of the church. 
And the last, one of the last verses said about these phonies, they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. We never forgot that. You know who uh, Jude was the little brother of? Jesus. So they never forgot this. And so in verse 20, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, separate yourself from this congregation. Don't be hit by flying body parts. That's the living Bible. That I might consume them. You don't want to be in collateral damage right here because I'm about to consume them. How many times has this happened? Three times since Sinai. Israel always has a problem with Judaism. They still do today. And that's why we're full of a bunch of Gentiles and very few Jews, because they don't like the idea of the holiness of God. And so in verse 22, they fell on their faces. And Moses says for the third time, God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, Korah, will you be angry with everybody? For the third time, Israel is saved by the mediation of Moses. You know what's ironic? What was the thing that they opposed? The mediation of Moses. How are they preserved? The mediation of Moses. They have bit the hand that fed them. In verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is amazing. If I'd have been God, I'd have said, uh, once is enough, twice is too much. The third time, get out of the way. But God says, speak to the congregation, all the little sheep that got misled, and say, get back from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Get back. Do y'all remember what Christ said about one that leads his children astray? Better to have a millstone around you and drop to the bottom of the ocean, to have no marker, to die like Osama bin Laden, where we drop you in the ocean and nobody knows you've ever lived than to lead one of my babies astray. Well, that's what this Levite, a Levite is supposed to lead men unto righteousness. The Levites were the seminary professors of Israel. They don't have a tribe. They have 48 Levitical cities and no one's ever more than 10 miles away from one so they can hear the word of God. This Levite is leading the whole nation away from God. Can that ever happen? Don't get me started. Okay. And so in verse 25, Moses arose, went to Dathan and Abiram, the elders, and said to the congregation, depart now from the tents of these. Notice what he calls them. Not men with diverse opinions. What's he call them? Wicked and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in their sin. Same way today, you get as far away as you can from what challenges the Word of God, the holiness of God, and the sufficiency of Jesus. Amen? You get way away from that. In verse 27, they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents with their wives, sons, and little ones. Does a parent's decision influence his kids? Yeah. The sins of the fathers is visited on the children to the third and fourth generations. They're impacted by what parents do. And Moses said, by this you shall know the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, and it's not my doing. If these men suffer the death of all men or the fate of all men, the Lord has not sent me. What is the means in the Old Testament, chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, that you know a man is a true prophet? What he prophesies always comes true. There's no prophet training program in Israel. Okay, You got to be dead on every time. And so he said, if these guys walk away from here, if these guys die at the age of 80, then I'm not a prophet of God. But in 30, if God brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into the pit or into Sheol, 
Then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. That's always a tip-off. God isn't pleased when the ground opens you up and swallows you. Okay. In verse 31, he finished speaking these words. And the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. And they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. The earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Gracious. This is a visible symbol of those who denied the law, refused his mediation, and led the nation astray, that God does not tolerate it. Well, I want to show you something interesting. If you look at verse 36, oh, I'm sorry, verse 35, we ain't killed everybody yet. Verse 34, all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry and said, the earth may swallow us up. You know, it's funny, Israel that thought these guys are so sharp, now they say, get as far as you can from these guys. Don't get close to them. And in verse 35, fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men, the leaders who were offering the incense. I thought about just calling this text crispy critters. Yeah. Because that's what you become. Do you need a better visual about the, and the, the self-righteous men we're talking about are the highest, the second highest elevated men in the, in the chosen nation. These were guys that had seen the uh, plagues of Egypt. They had seen manna in the wilderness. They tasted of it, but self-righteousness moved them. Well, in verse 37, say to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, because his two older sons had already died trying to go into the temple without the fire of the, of the uh, sacrifice. They were already dead. Nadab and Abihu said to Eliezer, the thirdborn, take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze for they're holy and scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men, a censer is like a little frying pan that you put coals on and put powder on of incense and you walk into the presence of God in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, but before the holy place, and it goes up like a sweet aroma of God's presence. As a matter of fact, the base of the uh, incense, if I believe rightly, is cinnamon. It's sweet. Well, in verse 38, I want you to take the censers and let them be made into a hammered sheet for the plating of an altar, since they did present them before the Lord and they are holy. They shall be a sign. In other words, the seeking of God is not bad. The seeking of God in a self-righteous way is bad. It's not that you are simply of another religion. It's that you have rejected the essence of a biblical approach. And you're going to work hard to get good karma so you can get reincarnated up. Or you're going to work hard in your meditation to reach nirvana where your body is put to rest where you can end the reincarnation cycle, or you're going to keep the five pillars of Islam so that you can die and go up with 72 Virginians, okay, in heaven or something like that, okay. Well, in verse 39, Eliezer took the bronze censers which the men who had burned had offered, and he hammered them into a plating. Now, look at this. We're going to take those metal censers and heat them up on the altar, where they glow red. And then we're going to take a hammer like a blacksmith and beat them into a pattern. All right. One of the words for hell in the New Testament is the word timpani. It means torment. What's a timpani? They're beating. They beat them into a plating. And then in verse 40, we do this as a reminder to the sons of Israel no unchosen man, no layman. You know what the Hebrew is? No stranger who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord. Don't you even think you can come. Don't you make one step 
into the holiness of God without the one that I have chosen and the sacrifice that I accept. It wasn't in itself eternally acceptable. It was only a prologue. It had to wait until the coming of Christ, until it was substantially fulfilled and now taken away. And so, that he should not come near to burn incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company. Folks, do you think God can speak any clearer? This is a reminder. Don't you do what these guys did. And I want it to be a reminder as the Lord has spoken to him through Moses. God told him no. He didn't. And so you would teach your kid, Daddy, Mama, what is that plating on the bronze altar that's glowing red and has gotten marks of being beaten? Would you like to know? Yes, I would. Because that isn't included in Exodus and all the articles of the temple. No, no, it's not. So what is it? That is something that the nation brought upon itself because we chose not to obey. And we took some very important guys and we felt they could tell us what to do. And we changed the Bible. And those men got consumed by fire. And so when you see this plating that is over that which represents the righteousness of God, that burning altar, you'll see something that burns forever. Child, don't you try this. Don't you try this. Don't you think that you're so smart that you don't need the Bible. Your education might teach you at Harvard, Princeton, and Yale about math, matter, mathematics, and mechanics. But it can't teach you upper story truth. God, the creation, the nature of man, evil, redemption, and where history will go. Is there any course you can take on this? No, you can't do it. You can drop acid and think you know. Okay. You can chew peyote out in the desert and think you know. You can go down and get you some mushrooms down in Austin or down in Mexico and think you can know. But you're not going to know. If God doesn't tell you, it goes like this. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man, but the spirit of the man that is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows, but the spirit of God. And then Paul said, now we, the apostolic company, we have received not the spirit of the world. We didn't learn from Plato, Aristotle, but from the spirit of God, that we can know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We can tell you who God is. Isn't that great? Can you make it in life? and not know how to make long division? Yes, you can. Can you make it in life and not know what a Golgi body is in the cell? Just turn to the guy next to you and ask him if he knows what a Golgi body is. That was a test question, wasn't it? But you can still make it. Can you make it and not know Genesis, Matthew, Romans, and Revelation? No, you can't. So God gives you essential truth. And once you know that, then you can do all the rest on, and figure it out. But God gives you the essence of truth. And so I want to show you here, a, uh, God says, a reminder, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Well, I'll show you something interesting. In chapter 17, he said, I'm going to give you another sign. I want you to take all the staffs of all of the tribal leaders, all 12 of them, and I want you to lay them in front of the tabernacle, Holy of Holies. And then in the morning, I want you to come back, just like Easter morning. And one of those staffs is going to blossom and bloom. Try that with your broomstick. Can you get a staff that has been sawed off and sawed off and that you've walked around with for a generation or two? Can you, and that's got the, the escuchan or the shield of your tribe. Can you lay that down and that thing blossom and bloom? No, it's dead. God said, lay them all down and I'm going to give life from the dead to the one that uh, can give life. They laid them down and in the morning, 
Verse 6, he spoke to the sons of Israel, and each of the leaders gave him a rod apiece, each leader according to their father's household, 12 rods, the rod of Aaron among the rods, 7, he deposited the rods. Verse 8, the next day he went to the tent of the testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, had sprouted and put forth buds, blossoms, and ripe almonds. If you saw a leaf come from, you might think, isn't that odd? But we see a complete tree has grown up. What is God saying? Coming to God on your own will get you deaf. Coming to God on the basis of the high priest of Israel will give you life. Isn't that something? You know why it's an almond tree? Because the Hebrew word almond is pronounced shaked, S-H-A-Q-E-D. The word for watching is the word shoked. All right? And in Jeremiah, God says, he shows Jeremiah the vision of an almond tree. And Jeremiah says, what is this? And God said, I am always watching over my word to perform it, and I'm going to bring judgment. The almond tree means that God is true. He's watching over his word. In the temple of God, you have a menorah of seven lights. It's made of gold. What is it shaped like? Almond tree. God is always watching over his word. You see the bulbs, you see the cups, you see the flowers, and you see the almonds. I'm always watching over my word to do it. And that's what God says I will do. Uh, let me show you something. You've got nowhere to go. Take a look here at Deuteronomy 18. Go to your right for just a little bit. Deuteronomy 18. When the next generation is going in, the old generation has died, the new generation is going in, and God says in chapter 18 and verse 9 through verse 11 about what the Gentiles of Canaan listened to. There not shall be found among, verse 10, your son or daughter, one that passes through the fire, human sacrifice, or uses divination or witchcraft, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or cast a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or a seance, one who calls up the dead. Look here. Whenever you're studying physical things, you can use empiricism and reason and what you can test. When you try to get up around with God and the soul and creation, you don't have a means of plodding around in that realm. You can't do that. You, you don't have any means to test. And so you get spooky. You listen to the hoot of an owl. You take the entrails of an animal and examine them. You take the liver of a sheep and examine them. All right? You get spooky. You get strange. And he said, the Gentiles do this. In verse uh, 14, the nations you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and diviners. They also produce great immorality because there's nothing about spookiness that will make you holy. He says in verse 14, God has not allowed you to do so. You want to know who God is? Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses stood between God and the nation and offered himself to die. Moses brought from God to the nation the truth and represented the nation before God. Does that sound like anybody you know that will lay down his life for you and be the living word of God to bring truth to you and will descend from heaven to take you home and will go to prepare a place for you and will come again and receive you to himself that where he is, you may be also? Well, in verse 15, you shall listen to him. Don't listen to all the spooky guys. You listen to this guy. There's going to be a Jew just like Moses that will lay his life down someday. God said, you look for him. And then in verse 16, this is according to all that you ask of the Lord at Sinai or Horeb. In the day of the assembly, let me not hear the voice of the Lord anymore, nor see this great fire or I die. And God said in 17, I like that. They've spoken well that they can't look upon a holy God. Well, so in 18, I'll answer their prayer. 
I'll raise up a prophet from their countrymen like you. I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him, that I'm going to bring a man who is the final revelation of God. As a matter of fact, when he descends from heaven, he's going to have a name on his thigh that says the word of God. As a matter of fact, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us that we might see his glory. Who are we talking about? Jesus. And so in verse 19, it shall come whoever will not listen to my words, which I speak in my name. Let me put that in living Bible. You reject my son. And in verse 18, 19, I'll require it of him. You do this one sin. You renounce the sin bearer. And I'm going to call you to account for what you did. Verse 20, the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, he shall die. And in verse 21, here's the way you're going to say, how shall we know? The word which the Lord of God has not spoken. 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing doesn't come about or come true, that is the thing the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Don't fear him. In other words, you can't know God. I know God because I am God. I will provide my final word in this man. When you listen to him, you've heard God. When you reject him, you reject God and you are called to account. And until he comes, I will raise up prophets. And the way you'll know they're prophets is they always come true and they're going to point to him. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus spoke to them the things concerning him in all the scriptures. Brethren, can God make it any clearer than he's just made it? Trust in Christ as Savior. Y'all know who H.G. Wells is? Sci-fi guy. He was an agnostic atheist. And he had a particular problem with Anglicans, Episcopals. And he really didn't like Anglican preachers or priests. And he wrote a story for the New Yorker about an Anglican preacher that every time somebody would come in for counsel, he would say, have you prayed about it? He would say it very piously. Have you prayed about it? The day comes, Wells said, that that preacher's life began to struggle. And so he decided for the first time in his life he would pray. And so he went into the chapel when it was vacant, got on the kneeling bench, got set, got the most pious posture he could get, looked up above, and he said, God. And at that point, Wells said, he heard a very sharp, authoritative voice. Yes. What is it? The next day, they came into the chapel, and they found him spread-eagled on the ground, his face on the ground, and they rolled him over, and he was dead. And his eyes were wide in terror. And the point Wells was making is that all these guys that talk about God and talk to God, they would be scared to death if they ever met him. I thank thee, O God, that I am not like other men. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Father in heaven, you make it as clear as you can. Man does not come to God on his own. He comes through the furniture of the altar. He comes through the laver of water to wash in. Then he moves on to the bread to feed him. Then he moves to the candlestick to give him light. And then he moves to the incense altar of a sweet aroma of the path. And then he goes behind the holy of holies. And there is the law of God. And there is the holiness of God. And in between is the mercy seat 
the Helasterion, the place of propitiation, and there the blood of the Lamb is placed. And that is how a man is saved. And so, Lord, in this congregation, if there's a bunch of humans that have pushed you to the outside, I pray that you would make them deal with you this hour because they are not guaranteed one o'clock. And I pray that they would receive into their hearts by faith the living presence of Jesus Christ and that they would confess with their mouth that he is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they would admit their need of truth, their need of atonement, and their need of rebirth. Lord, be merciful to us, the sinner. And we pray for our country that has gotten educated beyond its intelligence uh, and has chosen to begin with the ideas of man and to discount God. The chasm awaits. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen.